Shalom, and thank you for listening to the weekly teaching from Nachamu Ami. It's our honor that you've chosen to participate virtually, and we hope that this lesson will be an inspiration in your daily walk. We'd love to hear from you with a comment, a prayer request, or questions you might have. We believe the mission and message of Messianic Judaism is something the world needs now. If you enjoy these teachings, would you consider financially supporting the work of Nachamu Ami by visiting our website at www.makeandmessianic.com and clicking the Give Online button in the upper right corner. Thank you and enjoy the message. Shabbat Shalom. So, um, as many of you are likely aware, we are have just started. Uh, uh, excuse me, we've just started the book of Shemot. Yes, this is to keep me on track. All right. So um, that way, there. If you don't like it, I can say, "Well, the rabbis said so." I've got all the books to prove it. Um, so, so we've just started uh, the book of Shemot, of Shemos for Zelig Moshe ben Hillel. Um, and uh, it's, it's one of my favorite books because kind of interestingly enough, when I was a kid, my favorite biblical hero was Moses. Now, the funny thing is, is, you know, why do kids select certain heroes? I liked it because he had a stick. <laughs> Turned into a snake, parted water with it, probably bopped a few people on the head, you know. If you've seen the movie Home, it was the Shusher, you know. <laughs> so, you know, Moses was my favorite. And he had a cool coat, you know, if you saw the Ten Commandments. And for, you know, back when our, our church days when we were doing hallelujah parties on October the 31st, um, I was Moses and I had a cool coat. So... Not to be confused with Joseph. But um, so one of the things that I've really been learning, and if you're married uh, and, and at least mildly cognizant of life, you realize your wife has a different perspective than you do on things. <laughs> you know, you look at it like, I clean up after myself. She's like, Pfft. Let's see, your socks are over here, your underwear's over there. We're not even going to talk about the garage. So what we learn is that perspectives are different with different people, come from different backgrounds, uh, different, uh, different paths in life. But what we learn is that, you know, half empty or half full, the power of perspective. And what I want to talk about today is how our willingness to perceive other people's perspectives actually can be uh, positive or negative, whether we're willing to actually listen to people that don't agree with us um, and hear what they have to say. Now, I have to deal with it every day. I'm a claims adjuster. So I hear perspectives all day long. (laughs) So how did you hit him driving forward with the back of your vehicle? That's what I'd like to know. That's his fault. Okay, yeah. Um, So, yeah, so I hear perspectives all day long. But what I want to talk about is how that affects us as the body of Messiah, you know, looking through the Torah portion and seeing two very different perspectives uh, and how it either blesses or curses. 
So what I want to do is start by opening the Torah, or the Torah. <laughs> uh, so we'll, we'll start in Exodus 6, verse 2. And God spoke to Moshe, and he said to him, I am Hashem. I appear to Avraham, to Yitzchak, and to Yaakov as El Shaddai. But through my name Hashem, I had not become known to them. I also established my covenant with them and gave them the land of Canaan, the land of their sojourning in which they sojourned. And I too have heard the wail of the children of Israel from Egypt, uh, excuse me, whom Egypt enslaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore I say to the children, or rather you, say to the children of Israel, I am Hashem, and I shall take you out from under the burdens of Egypt, and I shall rescue you from their service, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments, and I shall take uh, you uh, to me for a people, and I shall be a God to you, and you shall know that I am Hashem your God who takes you out of the land, and rather from under the burdens of Egypt. I shall bring you to the land about which I have raised my hand and gave it to Avraham, Yitzchak, and to Yaakov, and sh I shall give it to you as a heritage. Ani Hashem, I am Hashem. And so Moses, rather Moses, Moshe, Moses, spoke accordingly to the children of Israel, but they did not listen to Moshe because of the shortness of wind and the hard work. And so Hashem spoke to Moshe saying, come and speak to Paro, the king of Egypt, that he should send the children of Israel from his land. And Moshe spoke before Hashem, saying, Behold, the children of Israel have not listened to me, so how will Paro listen to me? For I have blocked lips. And Hashem spoke to Moshe and to Aharon and commanded them regarding the children of Israel and regarding Paro, king of Egypt, to take the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. So one of the things that I find interesting is... When we, when we read this story, we see Moses questioning God a lot. But rarely do you see God retaliate in any negative way. In fact, what we're going to see later is that when, uh, when he challenges God, or we might see it that way, uh, that he's questioning God, we actually see God dealing with him in some way or another, speaking to him, explaining something to him, and then him doing it you don't see a lot of challenge. Now, of course, initially, when he first talks to him at the bush, there's a little bit of a challenge there. But it's very interesting. And so the rabbis ask, why did God not become angry with Moses for doubting and questioning his plan? So I'm gonna read from you one of my favorite commentaries on the Torah. It's by the Lubavitcher Rebbe of Righteous Memory. And uh, it's uh, a little section in there called The Sparks of Hasidus. It says that Moshe served God with his intellect, which is why the Torah, God's wisdom, was transmitted through him. The patriarchs, on the other hand, served God primarily through emotion. Since the primary emphasis of the patriarchs' uh, divine service was not intellectual, they never found the need to question God or to challenge him for an explanation of his actions. Only Moshe, whose focus was intellectual, demanded to know, why have you mistreated this people? Now thus Moses' question was not inappropriate. 
and inability to understand God's action would have weakened Moshe's intellectual bond with his maker. So Moshe asked God, not as a challenge, but rather as an attempt to come closer to him. God replied, with my true name, I did not become known to them. This name transcends all limitations. Thus God was replying to Moshe, do not serve me with your intellect alone. Temper your intellect with emotion and faith so that you can serve me without limitation. So there's kind of the difference. Now, of course, as I said, if you're married, um, one of the things that I have uh, you know, with my wife is she asks a lot of questions. And I tend to take them as a threat to my authority, you know. What are you doing, woman? Sit down. Yeah, I never said that, by the way. <laughs> there are guns. She likes cast iron. And we got some big ones. As Ruthie said this morning, which, which size would you like? So, um, uh, so yeah, you, do, you don't do that. But what do we see with this? Moses asked a lot of questions. The patriarchs didn't because the patriarchs served him differently from a different perspective. Moses needed to understand, God, if I'm gonna do this, I need to know why. And if your own people who know who you are do, are not gonna follow and listen to me, how is this guy going to? How can you expect Egypt to let your people go if your own people don't wanna go with me? Valid question. So, this, and this is also interesting, okay, so we have, obviously, the people doubted Moses, but I mean, put yourself in their position. I mean, a lot of times we read the Bible and we're like, what is wrong with those people? Put yourself in their position. I, can't, I can really put myself in the position because I, I took my family and moved from Arkansas all the way to here, and you know, when we went back to visit, this was kind of the first big visit was Thanksgiving. I had a lot of friends ask me, how's it going? Now, bear in mind, they would never understand that we would move halfway across the country to be part of something greater than ourselves. That, that doesn't register with them. And it makes sense, right? Most Christians, well, you just find a church in town. Surely you can find one you can work with, right? But in Messianic Judaism, it's very different. Messianic Judaism, you're lucky to find one at all. And usually, uh, you know, it's the land of fruits and nuts. Take your pick. So, uh, you know, it's... It's hard to find a congregation that has the messianic vision uh, and actually practices Judaism too. That's, that's rare. So they wouldn't understand why. Why would you leave? So think about it. If you, if you were in Moses's, you know, you, you got this crazy guy that's been gone. You know, he, he did some stuff. Used to be the prince of Egypt. Now he's gone, comes back. Oh, hey, let's go, guys. What? Who are you? <laughs> uh, Pharaoh wants you dead. Um, and, and so just put yourself in that position. When we left, it was crazy. Why would you do that? To take a job you're not sure you're gonna like, pick up your family to a land you don't know, you only know a couple of people, how do you know it's gonna work? There's no net, there's no, your family's nowhere nearby. My family is now much farther away than they were before. Her family is much farther away than they were before. We don't have any, any security. Plus, 
the, the land of Arkansas in the Ozarks is probably one of the most beautiful places I've ever lived. There is a river that flows all year long, 55 degrees, crystal clear. It could be 20 foot deep. You can see the bottom. It's absolutely gorgeous. Why would you leave? To come to a place that the river looks like Willy Wonka's Chocolate River. You know, <laughs> and it is not chocolate. <laughs> The kids might think it's chocolate when they pull it out of their diaper, but why would you do that? Because God said so, and that's hard to grasp. So when, and then when you look at the whole situation that the, uh, that the Jewish people were in at that time, I probably would have been in the camp that says, get out of here, you Meshigana, go home. So... And what we find is that most likely, uh, according to the sages, the, the Jewish people, the majority of them actually stayed in Egypt. Only a remnant left with Moses. So imagine that, about three million people, and they're considered the remnant. So let's, we gotta go a little easier on these folks because in, our, in, our, in their position, we probably would have done as bad or worse. So... On a communal or an individual level, as leaders and as followers, our perspective can determine where we are in God's story and whether or not we play the role that we're tasked with. So what is perspective? You know, what do I mean by perspective? You know, another word might be worldview, uh, Hebrew, hashrafa. What is that? And I mean, obviously, it's kind of a silly question. Well, it's, it's how I see things. It's, it's how I perceive things. It's how, how I view the world, how I, how I view uh, my relationships, how I view myself. But how is this developed? Now, of course, a you know, psychologist or a counselor could definitely give better points, but what I can say is it has to do with your culture, your surroundings. It has to do with how you were raised. It has to do with your personality. Uh, and it has to do with your drive and your... Um, and what your goals are, what your hopes are. But the, the, the perspective that we have can be the difference, one, between life and death. Um, Rashi actually talks about this uh, in terms of Egypt. Because, you, know, you know, why did the people not see the miracles that Moses was performing? Why did, the, uh, why did the magicians, why were they able to replicate it? Why were they trying to replicate it instead of trying to stop it? You know, like, hey, look, we can create frogs too. That's not the problem. We need to get rid of them. <laughs> what was, why were they doing it the other way? And so Rashi, which if you don't know, is a medieval commentator. Uh, he is one of the foremost thoughts on how we look at the Torah. And so he says, uh, regarding this, he says in, in the verse uh, 22, uh, 722, um, he says that where Pharaoh's heart had been hardened, he as if to say, through sorcery you are doing the transformation of blood, you know, for the, for the Nile. You are importing straw from Ophraim, which is a city full of straw. You too are like those who import straw from Ophraim because you are bringing sorcery to Egypt, which is full of sorcery. So it kind of makes sense. His perspective is you're just doing what everybody else around here does. 
And then, uh, so he talks, then we go later, we go into chapter 8. Of course, this is after a few plagues have come through. And we finally get to the point to where the sorcerers cannot replicate it. And this is what they said, uh, this is what they said to Pharaoh. If I can get to the right page. He said, it's the finger of God. The sorcerer said, the plague is not a result of witchcraft. It comes from the omnipresent. As Hashem had spoken, and in the verse, and Paro will not listen to you. So we see that, obviously, the perspective of the, of the wizards changed, and they said, this is something that we cannot replicate. It is the finger of God. Let's see here, catch up on my notes. And so in perspective can determine whether we receive God's blessing and if so, how much. So in the Haggadah, we have uh, something that uh, a lot of people kind of gloss over and I kind of used to until I heard a lesson on it that really made it made sense. So, so in, this, in this section, we have Rabbi Yossi, the, uh, the uh, Galilean. We have Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Akiva. And so they're all discussing how many plagues were there really? So the first one says, from where do we learn that the Egyptians suffered 10 plagues? In Egypt, but at the sea, they suffered 50. In Egypt, what did it say? And the magician said to Paro, this is the finger of God, but at the sea, what does it say? And the people saw the great hand of the Lord uh, in which he made against I Egypt. And the people feared the, feared the Lord and they had faith in the Lord and in Moses. So then he says, well, so how much did they suffer with his finger? Ten. Or ten. But how about, his, how about the hand? Fifty. So finger, ten, fifty. Pretty cool. So then Rabbi Eliezer says, well, actually, how do we know that, uh, excuse me, from where do we learn that every single plague that the Holy and Blessed be He brought upon the Egyptians in Egypt was composed of four plagues? So now we're getting more complicated. Leave it to the Jew. He sent upon them His burning anger, fury, indignation, trouble, and delegation of evil angels. Of course, we see this actually later in the Haggadah as well. So fingers, or rather, fury is one, indignation is two, trouble is three, and the delegation of evil angels is four. This means that in Egypt, they suffered 40 plagues, but at the sea, they suffered 200 plagues. Too bad Sharon's not here. She's the scientist. Uh, and then Rebbe Kiva said, from where do we learn that every single plague uh, that the Holy One, blessed be he, brought upon the Egyptians from Egypt was composed of five plagues? Now we're getting a lot more complicated. I'm glad I don't need a calculator. Uh, he sent upon them his burning anger, his fury, indignation, uh, trouble and evil angels, a delegation of evil angels. So burning anger is one, fury is two, indignation is three, trouble is four, delegation of angels is five. That means that in Egypt, they suffered 50 plagues, but at the sea, they suffered 250 plagues. And I'm sure that after about the first paragraph, you're going, and what does that have to do with the Brooklyn Bridge? Um, what's really neat, and I, I heard this from, uh, from Chabad, uh, he was talking about, he's like, what are the rabbis really wrestling with here? You know, it says in the Torah, 10 plagues. I mean, do we really have to go on about this? It's very interesting because it said, depending on the perspective of the person, determined how deep the plagues penetrated them to 
bring them to realize who God really was. Because this was the purpose of the plagues. You see through the plagues, you see that they had to deal with, uh, actually in some way or form, if you look at the way that the Egyptians oppressed the Jewish people, every one of those plagues actually was retaliation for something. Because at one point, Pharaoh calls the Jewish people basically bugs. They're just bugs. They proliferate like bugs, is essentially what the Hebrew alludes to. So what do they get? A proliferation of bugs. So they're, they're all the, oh, you want bugs? Okay. So all of them have to do with some type of retaliation against the way Pharaoh treated the Jewish people. But also to, to obliterate their belief that their gods had control over those elements. So... The question is, is on, on the very basic level. You know, so you have, you have the very basic level, you have a deep level, and then you have the very essence of something changing. So you have the four basic elements, and then you have the subatomic level. So there's your four and your five. Basic level, one. Four, changing on the elemental level, and then five, changing the very essence. And so for some people, they just got the, the, the 10 plagues. They, they saw, okay, yeah, all right, so let's not mess with that guy. Let's just let his people go, and maybe he'll leave us alone. The next level was, all right, he's God. He's God, I'll acknowledge that. And uh, that's about it. Then there is the complete change, and that's when you have the mixed multitude, which the rabbis say was actually larger than the Jewish people themselves. And they said, we want to go with that God. Why? Because there is no other God but him. So it's a matter of perspective. Do you stay with the sinking ship or did you leave with the Jewish people and do something crazy because God changed the very essence of who you are? Which I think is a beautiful story, especially when we look at from the perspective of Messianic Gentiles. Why would you want to be with all those Jews that reject Jesus? Because God's changed my heart and I see something different. The perspective can set the course for success or for failure. So if we, if we go to chapter nine, verse 34. Pero, uh, Pero, 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 or Pharaoh saw that the rain, the hail, and the thunder had ceased, and he continued to sin, and he made his heart stubborn, he and his servants. And Paro's heart became strong, and he did not send out the children of Israel as Hashem had spoken through Moshe. So what was interesting is in the Midrash, it actually talks about it actually talks about this, and it says that when, uh, that when he continued to sin, as soon as the hail stopped, Paro, uh, Paro, <laughs> keep doing that, Paro, Paro sinned once again, and when uh, he, excuse me, when he, okay, let me try that again. When he is suffering, the wicked man becomes righteous and loves God, but once his misery is alleviated, he becomes evil once again. The righteous, however, are always humble, they are respected for this reason, as the verse says, the humble in spirit shall be supported by honor, Proverbs 29.33. Or as the master says, shall inherit the earth. And let's go ahead and back up a little bit to chapter 6, verse 30. 
Moses, uh, and then I love this, uh, Moshe said before Hashem, behold, I have block lips. How can I, or rather, how shall Pharaoh listen to me? And so we see after this that Hashem said to Moshe, he said, I see, I have made you master over Paro and Aharon, your brother, shall, uh, shall be your speaker. And so we see after this that after God explains this to him, we go to, you know, in chapter 7, verse 6, it says, Moshe and Aharon did as Hashem commanded them, so they did. So after God explained it to him, he's like, okay, okay, I've got this, we can do this. So there's your difference in perspective there. You have one person who's rooted, his whole perspective is rooted from the fact that he is a god, he is the offspring of Ra, uh, and that, and, and, but Moses has a totally different perspective. He's humble, he recognizes who God is. And so because of that perspective, it creates a conflict between being able to be submissive to God. So he's only submissive when he's under oppression. But as soon as that oppression lifts, ah, I survived that, let's keep going. But a humble person actually seeks God and says, hey, I, I need to understand this, how are we gonna do this? And then moves after that explanation is given. But there's also the issue of having too much humility. So in, uh, there's a, a, pop, a, a famous story in the Talmud, and it's about, uh, uh, let's see, it's Rabbi, I don't remember, uh, Zechariah. Rabbi Zechariah, uh, it said that by the tolerance displayed by Rabbi Zechariah uh, in refusing to have Bar Kamsa put to death, he destroyed the temple. So who's Bar Kamsa? Bar Kamsa was an individual that had a feud with another person named Kamsa. And there was, a, there was a banquet, and both of them inadvertently wound up there because they were the friends of the person doing the banquet. But one was accidentally invited. The one that was accidentally invited was asked to leave. And he's like, listen, I'll stay, I'll, I'll pay, you know, I'll pay my, my wage, whatever it is, however much I eat, I'll pay for it. Just let me stay. He's like, no. So he gets physically taken out. And so Barcomso becomes very angry because he sees that the sages are there watching and none of them stand in and step for him. So he says, you know what? I'm gonna spread slander. So he goes to Caesar and he says, look, the Jewish people have rebelled against you. They no longer honor you as king. He's like, well, how's that so? He said, I'll tell you what. You take an offering down there. I'll take it. And if they don't offer it, then you know that they have rejected you as Pharaoh or Pharaoh, as Caesar. Get my peeps mixed up. So he uh, does this. Now, since he knows the Torah, he causes a minor blemish on the animal that makes it disqualified. And he did that on purpose so that the Jewish people, the priesthood, would not offer it because of this. So they bring it to Rabbi Zechariah, who was the head of the council at the time, and says, what do we do? So, well, how about let's, uh, let's go ahead and offer the animal they talked about even replacing it. They're like, well, let's replace it. We just won't tell them that we did that. And we'll go ahead and offer it up. But we can't do this animal. Or, and then one was like, well, why don't we go ahead and do it and for the sake of mercy so that God would preserve the people. And then Zechariah said, well, actually, if we do that, then the people are gonna be like, oh, so we can take up blemished animals. And they thought, well, we need to put him to death because this is, he's, he's inciting rebellion. He's trying to destroy the Jewish people. And they said, well, he said, well, we can't do that either. Because then if we do that, then the people are like, oh, if you bring a blemished animal, we're gonna put you to death. You know, so wound up happening that 
they, uh, they didn't offer the animal. And according to the sages, Caesar moves in on Jerusalem and sacks it. So the sages are saying because he was too humble. And this is what one of the, uh, the rabbis pointed out. Or actually it's Rashi. Rabbi Zechariah did not see himself qualified to make the determination that Bar Kamsa posed a mortal danger to the Jewish nation. So he did not put him to death. He was too humble. There is such a thing. Something that uh, I either struggle with one or the other. Uh, I either struggle with being very haughty or debasing my, myself to the point that, that I'm completely ineffective. Uh, so there is such a thing. You have to be somewhere in the middle. And, uh, and actually, uh, Morinus, uh, in his book, uh, Everyday Holiness, he talks about, he says, it's occupying your space. No more, no less. When you have gifts, when you have the ability to do something, do it. But don't, oh, well, I, I, that's too prideful. I struggle with this so much. That's why I'm preaching to myself right now. You have the ability to do something, so do it. Because if you don't, you're actually not fulfilling your role in the story that God has placed you in. Um, and so perspective will actually chart the course of relationship towards growth or decline. As it says in the Talmud, respect your wives more than yourself. Probably should do that. Just saying. Because that, that's either growth or decline if you don't, right? Um, but also, I really, I really like this. So, highly recommend this book, Mesilat Yesharim. So, in the introduction, the Ramchal, who's the author, said something very interesting. He says, you will see if you examine the prevailing situation of this world that most people with quick minds and most astute intellects uh, focus most of their contemplation on observation on the nuances of various disciplines of wisdom and the depths of intellectual studies. Each person according to his mind's disposition and his natural interest. For there are those who put gr a great deal of effort into research of creation and natural sciences while others focus their studies on astronomy or geometry and others to mastering various crafts. Still others enter further into the realm of holiness. Some concentrating, or rather, they dedicate themselves on the study of the Holy Torah. Some concentrating their theoretical intricacies of the laws. Some on the study of Mitzvahim. And some on practical halakhic rulings. Few, however, are those of this intellectual type who will focus their contemplation and study on the matters of achieving completeness in the service of Hashem. Namely, in loving Hashem, on fearing him, on cleaving to him, and in all other elements of piety. So following Hashem's commandments by observing the practical obligations and the prohibitions of the Torah is surely essential. However, complete service to Hashem is one who involves not only the person's actions, but also the heart and mind through love and fear of Hashem, through cleaving to him, and through other aspects of piety. So it's not enough to do. We have to cleave. We have to go beyond that basic element of checking in the box. 
We have to work towards actually developing an attitude of service and a desire to cling to our Heavenly Father, not just uh, for the sake of checking the box. And I know that can be hard. And, and so the Tanya, which is basically the, the core text, the Tanya actually talks about the, the concept of how, how do we really bring holiness into the world. We do so through uh, what's called da'at, which, which means, uh, what is it, it's knowledge. But the way they break it down is what is knowledge, thought, speech, and deed. So in Greek philosophy, it's what you know. Jewish philosophy, it's thought, speech, and deed. The incorporation of everything, all the elements of who we are as a being, and incorporating that into the way we believe and act. The perspective can encourage growth or it can restrict. So, uh, you know, as we talk about perspective, one of the analogies I really liked was by uh, Pastor Franzak. And he talked about that, he used a really funny example of cookies. And, and I like this, I've used it before. But, so it's like you, you've got this chart and the chart has, you know, cookie right here in a bubble. It's almost like mind mapping. And then it's like everything branches out based on what you know about it. Okay, so cookies are round, or maybe they're square, or they taste good, or they taste terrible. Um, and, and so all of these different perspectives that you gain, you kind of almost categorize, and, and it all enhances that particular thing. And this is perspective. But there are different ways to deal with how, when new information comes in, how we assimilate that information based on our perspective. And that is, if you've got this thing over here that says all cookies are good and then you taste a terrible one, what do you do with that? Do you, do you uh, go ahead and, okay, well, all cookies are bad now. Um, or do you, okay, so maybe my perception of that wasn't totally right. So maybe, maybe I should change it to some cookies are good, but we've also got some bad ones. Then there's the conspiracy theorist view. They've lied to me. <laughs> they told me cookies were good. And then everything just falls apart. But it's, so it's actually, as far as our perspective encouraging or restricting growth, if we are able to absorb information and not blow to every wind of doctrine, there's gotta be a balance. But if we're able to absorb information and allow that to, okay, what do we do with this? Okay, this is different than what I originally thought. This is maybe what I, different than my experience. What do I do with this information? But throwing it out is certainly, going to hinder your ability to grow and understand and your ability to relate to others. Because what we have to realize is that we have a perspective and so does everybody else. And nobody's perspective is exactly the same. It, try as we might, we're still only going to have our perspective of even their perspective. And trying to best understand that person, how they perceive things in our relationship, and so that's the point of relationship and communication, and it's very hard because my wife loves to explain things to me, and I'm not, believe it or not, not much of a talker. I know it's hard to believe. So, and so what I wanna do just real briefly, how much time do I have? All day. Okay, because I have a tendency to cram way too much. Um, so, the, I want you to hear this, uh, this perspective. This is pulled from the Talmud, Tractate Eruvim 21b. My son, be careful concerning rabbinical decrees even more than the Torah, dot, dot, dot. The Torah contains prohibitions, dot, dot, dot. 
But anyone who violates a rabbinical decree is worthy of death. That sounds bad, doesn't it? So what I want to do just real quick is, first of all, there's a problem with this perspective. The perspective, and the reason I put the dots in there, that perspective intentionally removed key information that changed exactly what that text was even talking about. When we have a perspective, you know, as it was at uh, Thomas Jefferson, I think it was, it said that when a person formulates a theory, he sees in all things only the traits which favor that theory. So, that, so we can't even see the woods for the trees because we've already decided what something means or how, uh, how it applies, and we just discard the information that actually might prove us wrong. So I'm just gonna very quickly read this section. So he says, uh, what is the meaning of what is written? More than these, my son, be heedful of the making of many books, which is out of Ecclesiastes. This means my son be more heedful to the words of the sages than the words of the Torah, for the words of the Torah include positive commandments and negative commandments, which are subject to punishments to varying severity. But the words of the sages, anyone who transgresses these words of the sages is liable of death. Lest you say, if the words of the sages are of substance, why were they not written in the Torah itself? Thus the verse responds, the making of many books is without limit. There is no end to the number of books that would be written to contain all of these laws. Does that sound a little different? So, and here's what, here's what uh, I think it was Rabbeinu Yonah said. Some biblical laws carry the, beth, the death penalty and some do not. Uh, and so he, he, so he offers this explanation. He says, it is often the case that the one who violates a biblical law actually respects it, but was motivated by his physical desires to commit the sin and is subsequently remorseful for it. His act, therefore, is not a rejection of his obligation, but rather a momentary lapse in their observance. However, violations to rabbinic law tend to derive from the lack of regard for rabbinic law in general. The sinner disparages rabbinic laws for not having been written down in the Torah and maintains that there is no need to observe them. This rejection of his obligation is an assault on the integrity of an essential part of the Torah, and he is therefore deserving of death. Do you see what I'm saying? What does it say in the Torah? Heed my children of Israel, heed the judges that are in your place at that time. If you deviate from the left or from the right, you should be cut off from your people. Okay, that's what it's talking about. Because if you look in the Talmud, and this is in the book, and I'm not even gonna give him the honor of mentioning the name of the book, but the, the book that this was pulled from, basically its whole premise is, is the, the rabbis replaced the Torah with the Talmud, and the rabbis themselves esteem themselves higher than the Torah itself, God forbid. So the Talmud, if you study it, actually doesn't do that at all. Uh, in fact, in Tractate Shabbat, it gives a very key, and, and, and so I encourage you, you know, we've got it in the Beit Midrash. Uh, it, in the introduction, it explains, you're going to see throughout, throughout this, this whole thing where it says, Chayav Patur. You see, Chayav Patur, Chayav Patur. What does that mean? Chayav means liable, patur means absolved. Okay, what does that mean? Well, it's all dealing with certain things that happen. 
And the Talmud is dealing with, wrestling with different circumstantial situations. Some of them are real, some are just hypothetical. But if this particular situation happens, what's the outcome? If he violates this, chayav or patur? And what, what it comes down to is chayav, liable means he broke a biblical law. Patur means he broke a rabbinic law. He's not subject to the penalty because it's not the Torah. So what you will find in the Talmud is that there is a very clear distinction between Torah law and rabbinical decree, offense and the real thing. So the master gave uh, an example when he said, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery. I tell you, don't look at a woman lustfully. Now, let me ask you a question. If a man looks at a woman lustfully, chayav or patur? Patur, he's absolved. He didn't actually break the law, but the spirit did. And so he's still going to be subject to the intent of his heart. But he won't actually have to bring any offering or anything like that. And that's what the town was talking about because it's saying, yeah, okay, so he broke the fence and that's got its own situation. But he didn't break the Torah itself, the particular prohibition in the Torah. So that is what that passage is talking about. It's talking about rebellion. It's talking about intentionally doing something against God's word, against the leadership that he established, and that when you do that, even though the rabbinical laws are not as binding, they become binding when you have that attitude of rebellion. And therefore, you should be worthy of the death penalty if it's out of an act of rebellion. So it's almost like a kalbe homer, light heavy. And also, the sages also went further on to say in that section, they said, and when a, when a rabbinical law is given, its explanation is given along with it. A lot of the Torah's laws, we have no idea why we're supposed to keep those. So it is, the, the rabbinic laws are fences to help guard the Torah. And the rabbis are very, very clear about that. So I just wanted to throw that in there and how much wisdom is missed by people that are believers in Yeshua because of that misunderstanding of the purpose of the Talmud, of the purpose of Jewish literature, the Midrash, whatever the case may be. So I wanted to kind of put that in there just to, I don't know, maybe give a, a little bit of a perspective. So you can kind of, okay, yeah, that, from my perspective, that sounds pretty bad. But we have to look at the thing in its entirety. And remember, it's not our culture. We weren't raised to think the way that they think. And anybody that's from a different culture, you know that. Because you come into another one, you're like, wow. I mean, I heard about some cultures where uh, this means no. And that's not just my one-year-old. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know. So, um, and, and actually, I just want to point out this one last thing before we move on and try to bring this to a close. Rabbi Steinsaltz, Rabbi Dean Steinsaltz, he is the, uh, the head, last I heard anyway, the head of the placement Sanhedrin in Israel. He is, uh, he's a Chabadnik, a, a wonderful, wonderful person. He just, uh, a, I don't know, maybe less than 10 years ago, just finished translating the Talmud into modern Hebrew so that people can study it. A, a life's work, uh, he's, I think, in his 90s. Amazing, I've read some of his books. Uh, beautiful, beautiful soul. And he said, he said, the Talmud is perhaps the only sacred book 
in all the world that permits or even encourages the student to question it. That's why it's there. Talmud means to study. It means to work it out. What does this mean? Why? And it's okay. You got all these different opinions. The purpose is to study, to delve deeper, to see the different points of view, and to learn from it. And it's okay to disagree. The Talmud's not threatened by that. That's why it was written. So on a communal level, we come together to form a tribe with a general united vision and a plan for achieving goals and a mission. At NAMS, or at Nachamu Amin, what is our vision and mission? It is the realization of the message of the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And to live now for the realization of this messianic age. It is the practice of ideal messianic Judaism, a religion that is Judaism, with the path of, for the Gentiles to worship and to serve and that path be open and welcoming. It is the learning from the sages of Israel through the study of Talmud, Midrash, Chassidut, and enhancing our understanding of our sages, the apostles, from their Jewish world. It means learning from different perspectives, Jew and Gentile, from around the world, being encouraged, challenged, agreeing, disagreeing, and growing in the process. It is through wrestling with God's word, studying it from different angles and perspectives with the desire to grow closer to God that makes the words of the sages so special. Because like my wife, they ask the craziest questions. I mean, some of the questions she asks, I'm like, in what world would that matter? Well, they were talking about spaceships in the Talmud. They didn't even have flight back then. So... <laughs> And on an individual level, I can't talk. My tadang is tadak. On an individual level, we find a longing to be part of something greater than ourselves, seeking out a tribe and join it and become part of the body. The vision has to be inclusive and outreaching for the sake of the kingdom. We will find ourselves challenged. Uh, the mission is greater than we can bear. But that means that we're playing the role in the story that God cast for us. It means understanding that humili what humility really is. Not thinking less of ourself, but thinking of ourself less. Occupying our space that is fit for us no more and no less. And so I just want to close real quick with some of the teachings of the Messianic sages, the apostles. All right, so this is in Didache 4. My child, remember night and day the teacher who speaks a word of God to you. And I'm not talking about myself, by the way. Um, and esteem him as Lord, for where lordship is spoken of, there the Lord is. And every day seek the presence of the righteous so that you can learn and rather lean upon their words. Do not crave conflict, but bring those who are quarreling to peaceful reconciliation. Judge righteously, and do not show partiality when rebuking transgressions. And then also um, in Ephesians 4, 2 and 6. Uh, let me back up to verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner 
for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. But there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called uh, to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. And then also in 1 Peter 3, 8, and 9. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. On the contrary, bless for to this you were called, that you may obtain blessing. On the communal and individual level, as leaders and as followers, your perspective can determine where you are in God's story and whether you are playing the role that God has cast for you. Shabbat shalom.